0: So if you do, if you have your Bible, I hope that you will open up with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Praise the Lord, amen. And I have a few notes that I want to send you home with this morning. Philippians chapter 4, the end of Paul's letter. And if you are taking notes, the title of my message this morning, I hope that you will write this down at the top, is The grass is not always greener. Come on, amen. There are some people in here who are like, I've learned that lesson the hard way, right? The grass is not always greener. And what I want to talk to you about is a big issue in our culture today. And what I want to talk to you about is why does it seem that so many Christians are not content with their lives? It's something I wrestle with. It's something that you wrestle with, I'm sure. This is no secret to any of us. And we understand why non-believers are not content. I understand why I was not content with my life when I was not a believer. It's because I didn't have Christ. I didn't know the author and perfecter of my faith. I didn't know Jesus. But why does it seem so many Christians are not content with where they are in life? It's no secret that we live in a generation that is possibly the most anxious, worried, fearful generation that has existed in a very long time at least. Everybody around us is stressed, everybody is anxious, and everybody is a little on edge these days. And what we find is we often struggle to be right where we are in our lives. Now I have the great pleasure of working with college students and young adults and even students who graduate from ministry and get married. And if you look around at our culture, you will find a lot of people who are struggling to be content. You will find people who are not truly fulfilled in their job. You'll find people today in 2023 who are not really happy with where they are in life. You'll find people who look down on even the city they live in and always believe that there's a better city out there to live in. You'll find people who want better co-workers, better friends, and even a more picture-perfect family. And you'll find people who want more credit and more attention. And these, sadly, are not just non-Christians. These are believers. And if we're honest this morning, a lot of days this is you and it's me. We struggle to be content. But when we meet somebody who is truly content in Christ, somebody who truly has a joy and a peace in Christ. that can't be rocked with this world. When we meet somebody like that, it's a breath of fresh air, isn't it? How many of you know somebody like that this morning? Somebody who is truly happy, truly satisfied in Christ, and they're not chasing the grass on the other side. This morning, I'm praying that this sermon helps you and me to be that kind of Christian, especially as we head into the holiday season. Because deep down, all of us long to be content in Christ. We long to feel close to Christ. We long to know Him in an intimate way. And the trap that we fall into as humans is that oftentimes our flesh continues to tempt us with the idea of more. That there's always something more. There's always something next. There's always something better. There's always something else I can get or attain or reach that's going to give me the satisfaction I'm looking for And we miss the day the Lord has given us. And the Bible tells us today is the day the Lord has made rejoice. And when we don't know if we have tomorrow, we better do with what we can with today. Amen? And so I want to talk to you about this. John D. Rockefeller, the man who built an empire that controlled, of course, 90% of the wealth of the oil industry in the U.S., had wealth upon wealth. And when he was asked at the end of his life, after accumulating all this wealth, he was asked a question at the end of his life that's very fascinating. They asked him, How much is enough? And you may know his reply. It was made famous. His reply was, just a little bit more. And sadly, that's the story of a lot of our lives, is that we're always looking for more. Well, I want us to walk away today content in Christ. Now, here's what we need to understand about Paul's letter to the Philippians, especially in chapter 4. But this is towards the end of his life and it's at the end of the letter. And what Paul does in this statement, you'll probably be familiar with it, is that he makes a massive statement that is truly life-changing for you and me if we embody. This is something that Paul has learned throughout the course of his life. He says that he has learned the secret to being content. He's going to make a statement to say that I have learned the secret to not needing more or less, but being joyful, happy, and at peace right where I am. Am the man who was tortured, the man who was beaten publicly, the man who was hated for his faith in Christ when he began preaching. I think he's overqualified to speak on being content. <laughs> and he's going to give us an incredible, incredible word. Now, one author and one pastor, many years ago that I've read about in my study, he was talking about contentment. And he, he said that contentment is the rare jewel of Christianity that if you find contentment you find a rare jewel that few find and it comes from the story of a Brazilian farmer in the year 1990 who went down to the river to get some water and he goes down to the river and he's filling up his water and as he's looking down at the water he sees something flicker at him and he goes down he leans down and he picks it up and he realizes it's red and it's flickering and he picks it up, and the story goes that he has no idea what he's just discovered. He picks up the largest red diamond in history. It was 13.9 carats. And he picks it up. He doesn't realize what he has. He doesn't realize the wealth and the value of what he has found yet because that red diamond ended up being worth about $8 million. <laughs> Can you imagine going out to the river and finding an $8 million red diamond? For some of us, that would answer a lot of problems we have in our life, <laughs> Right? For some of us, that would cover Christmas and then some, right? Depending on how many kids you got. (laughs) It might not cover Christmas, depending on what the kids are asking for this year. And he finds this $8 million red diamond. And red diamonds are the most rare diamond you can find. And I love this because that pastor said that what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 is the red diamond of our faith. What Paul talks about is the rare jewel of our faith. That if we are so lucky to find the secret to being content in all circumstances... You have found a rare jewel that very few people in their life find. And so, look with me at Philippians chapter 4, and let's walk through this morning what it means to be content in Christ. Now, Paul, as he is thanking the Philippians for a gift that they have sent him, he says this starting in verse 11 of chapter 4. Paul says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Paul says, I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. And then the famous verse that many of us see on t-shirts, coffee mugs, everywhere is Philippians 4.13. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me give you number one. I have two things for you. The first one is being content is a secret that must be learned. Being content is a secret that must be learned. I talked a moment ago about how at 21 years old I gave my life to Jesus. And when you choose to give your life to Jesus, you gain the most valuable thing you can find. That being him, Jesus. And when you do, when you have that moment of salvation, when you have that moment where you are trusting Jesus with your faith, you gain salvation. Praise the Lord for that. Anybody grateful to be known by God and saved by God? Amen. Hallelujah. You get saved. You have salvation. You have the forgiveness for your sins, for his shed blood on the cross. Not just that, though. You're adopted as a child of God which means you have direct fellowship with God, you are a part of the family. Not just that, though, you gain a a very clear mission and purpose as soon as you get saved. And what is that? To go and tell people about Jesus and then make disciples, right? You get a very clear mission and purpose for your life. And then not only that, you also gain eternity in heaven when you die. I mean, the moment you get saved, you gain so much, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, a clear purpose and mission for your life, direct fellowship with God, and a place for all of eternity. It's an incredible gift to know Jesus. I mean, hear me, don't miss how precious it is alone to have salvation in Christ. But pay attention because here's what's so important. Paul says, here's something I didn't get the day I got saved. Here's what had to happen along the way. Here's what is so precious to me and near and dear to me that I didn't get at the moment of my salvation that God had to instill and teach me. And that is the truth of being content. Resting in Christ at all times, no matter your circumstances, Paul says that this was something he had to learn. Now, this means a few things, church family, for your faith and for mine. First off, it means that there was a significant time period in Paul's life where he was not content in all circumstances, which I think is an awesome thing about the Bible. It once again humanizes another hero of the faith. That as huge of a ministry Paul had of planting churches and reaching people and ministering to the Gentiles, there was still a time period in his life he looks back on and talks about how he was not content in Christ in all circumstances, that he had to learn this. But this also means something else for us. If it has to be learned, what's convicted me is this means not all Christians have learned it. That if we were to take the room and poll and survey all of the Christians who do know Jesus and who are saved, that there would be, we don't know the number, but there would be a significant population of you and me who have not learned the most valuable secret Paul learned in his life, which is to be content in all circumstances. Now, I don't know about you. In my walk with God, I feel very convicted and challenged to say that I don't want to be at the end of my life and still not understand the secret. In fact, I don't want to reach my next birthday still not understanding the secret that Paul talks about. I want to know this now. I want to know what it means to be content in Christ now. Number one, because it's commanded by God. It's not just an option. You don't get to choose. Like, hey, I'm going to either be a Christian who is confident or I'm going to be a Christian who just worries 24-7. Like, you're commanded to be content but number two, as I go through my life, I don't want to look back and have regrets because I took for granted the blessings that were given to me. Because I was always looking over the fence at somebody else's yard. The grass is always greener, the yard's always bigger, the house is always better, the family's always more perfect. And that's a sad way to live, and it's not the life God has for you, it's not the life he has for me. And so it has to be learned, and there are Christians who have not learned this. This is why there are Christians who, like me and you, complain and whine and moan and and take for granted things in our lives and don't really love our loved ones well. And this is why we get in a rush and why we're impatient and why we're always on to the next thing. Because we often miss that it's a secret that has to be learned. This explains why there are Christians who have Jesus, but don't don't understand he's their ultimate treasure. And how encouraging is it that this truth can be learned, though? Isn't that an amazing thing? It brings so much life to the journey you and I are walking on. It brings so much life to the moments we have, the highs and the lows, the wins and the trials, that in all of them God is teaching us a valuable lesson. If you think about Paul, how did Paul learn this lesson? Well, i got to tell you, he learned it through the highs and the lows. He says in this verse that he didn't just learn how to do a lot with what he had, he learned how to do a lot with when he didn't have anything. That it was in the moments where Paul was very blessed relationally. I mean, Paul had wins. He had favor, he had people's love. He had people's support. He had partnership in the ministry. He had resources in his life. Like Paul had blessings, and when he had those blessings, he knew what to do with them in order to give God the glory. And when Paul was in prison, when he had been beaten and stoned and tortured and the, bat and, and the skin ripped off his back and he was in a jail cell and he had nothing and no body and no support and it's just him and God, he still knew, God is with me, God is good. It was through every single one of the circumstances that Paul walked through that he learned how to be content. And I want to be so bold to say that in your life, every circumstance you have, God has a lesson. Every test is meant to produce a testimony. Every trial brings victory if we hold firm to Christ, even if that victory is not how the world says it should look. Paul is clearly telling us that we cannot be content if we place our faith in circumstances around us. Church family, you and I can't give life that kind of power What a shaky, unfirm foundation we have. If our peace, and hear me on this, our joy and our value rests upon our circumstances that we go through in life because those circumstances are always changing. What you and I need is a savior and a foundation that is never changing and that's why Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Paul has learned it is impossible to be content if you place your faith in circumstances. You and I cannot be content in Christ and dependent on the world at the same time. And as I've studied this, one of the questions I wrote, I wrote down was, why does it seem that a lot of Christians, myself included, don't learn this the way Paul did? Like, why is that? Let's go deeper. Why do we often miss this? Here's what I want to tell you. There's an old saying that you're probably familiar with. That most of what we learn is caught, not taught, right? Right? You can have a preacher yell at you all day long to be content. I can have a preacher yell at me all day long to be content. It probably ain't going to make much of a difference for me. A lot of what we learn is caught, not taught. Here's what that means. We learn most by who we follow the most. So we are constantly catching things from those who have influence over us. We are constantly being shaped and molded by who we follow and who are around us. It's just like I tell my college students as they're choosing to either have godly friends for the next 10 years or worldly friends for the next 10 years. The people who you are surrounded by, the people who you are following are shaping you for good or for bad. And I believe a lot of reasons in our Christianity that we leave contentment and peace and joy on the table is because we're not truly following Jesus as close as we would really like to. There's culture, there's family, there's tradition, there's religion, and all of these things when they have our ear more than Christ, they influence us away from being content. And we have to ask, are we following Jesus the closest? Now I want to break this down. I have two subpoints I want to give you based on what Paul says here to go a little bit deeper on this idea of contentment. Here's the first one if you want to write this down, is that A, comfort does not equal contentment. Comfort does not equal contentment. Comfort is fleeting. Comfort in this world doesn't last. The minute in your life you feel like everything is going your way, the minute you are comfortable, the minute everything is looking good, the minute you feel comfortable in your life, your check engine light comes on. The minute you get comfortable, your car is like, something's off here. (laughs) Check engine light. The minute you start thriving, you're feeling good, you're comfy. Battery light's on. Obviously, I've been there a few too many times. (laughs) Your car, check engine light, knows how to humble you down a little bit. It knows when you're doing too well. Many of us make the mistake of thinking that if we can live as securely and comfortably as we can, that we'll be content, so we set out for this goal in life. We set out for this goal to be comfortable with our money and comfortable with our family and comfortable physically, comfortable spiritually. And we try to avoid trials. We try to avoid confrontation. But oftentimes what ends up happening is that in pursuit of comfort, we forfeit opportunities to do something for God. In the name of not being uncomfortable, we will often choose to not do something bold for God But comfort doesn't last, and it's not the life we're called to. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter 1, let me remind you, church family, this holiday season that we are called to a life of conviction and action. We are not called to a life of comfort and apathy. That in your life, you have great tasks and a great call to live for God and to do something special for Him in your life. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 13 says this, an exhortation. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us at the end of his life that God allowed him to go through trials and hardships, but God was faithful to carry him through it. And all of us have a hard time trusting God when we're in a trial, but at some point we must ask the question, when we are uncomfortable, when we are hurt, when life does not go the way we want it to go, do we still trust the sovereignty of God? Do we still trust that God is good and he's working this out for our good, but ultimately for his glory? And that's what we desire the most. That's the question we have to ask. I heard a story of a father who took his three-year-old son, his three-year-old son was named Ryan, he took him to the the doctor because his son had an earache. And when he went to the doctor, the doctor told him, he did did everything on his ear and he told him that they were going to have to do a a, they had to use an instrument on his ear, and we don't have to get into the details of it for you to understand, but they'd have to use an instrument on his ear, and it would cause a lot of pain. But that using this instrument on his ear was the one way that they could get his ear to heal and get over this infection. And so it's an amazing story as this dad tells about this as he's in the doctor's office, because he says that his three-year-old son can't understand what's happening. But they put the son on the table, and when he begins to use the instrument on the son's ear, the son begins, of course, like screaming in terror. I don't know if you ever outgrow that. I still sometimes scream when I get shots. So I don't like needles. Like, I understand. Like, you can come around me with a needle, I'm screaming immediately. It's like, I get it. I'm 29, my dad can still hold me while I'm getting a shot. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I understand what's happening. This three year old son, you can imagine, like, his dad puts him on this table, and all he knows is this hurts. Sometimes that's all we know in life is that this hurts. We don't have the great perspective of it. We, we see the story of David. We see the story of Moses. We see the story of these heroes in the Bible play out. But we don't have that kind of 2020 knowledge of what's happening down the road. We just know that right now this hurts. And the dad tells a story that as his son starts screaming, the dad, of course, has this agony in his heart over his son because he doesn't want his son to hurt And the dad says, he says, I really believe my pain was worse than his pain because I just wanted it to stop. And so the dad, who is 6'2", 200 pounds, goes over to the 3-year-old son and throws his arm around him and holds him while it's happening. And he said that as his son was screaming and crying, he knew this was what was best, though. And I love this because I wrote this down from the story. The father said that there was no way for my son to understand that this pain I was allowing him to experience ...was necessary because it would lead to his ear being healed... He said, even though the temporary pain was awful, his dad didn't mean it out of pain. His dad meant it for love because the temporary pain would lead to permanent healing. He said, I had to love my son enough to endure this pain with him because it was best, even if my son couldn't understand in this moment and was mad at me for it. And it's the same way with you and me, with our Father in heaven, that God might just allow us to go through things in life that are painful, that hurt, and all we know is that it hurts. All we know that was that we don't understand this trial. But God has promised us that when we suffer and when we endure for the name of Jesus, that when we go through hard times, when we lose what we are so holding to in this world, that he has promised us blessings and restoration and hope that is not found in this world. And even more than that, what Paul says at the end of his life, he says that I have learned to be content in all circumstances, and the pain and the trials and the hurt That God allowed me to go through in the name of Jesus was all for his glory in the end, and it has made me a better Christian. I'll be honest. I Like, just me? I don't want that. I want comfort in my flesh. But in my heart to heart, in my soul, with the Lord, what I do know... When those trials come, when that pain's there, if I trust God with it, he is working it out to make me a better Christ follower. We just got to ask the question, do we want to be better Christ followers or do we want to be better world followers? That's what Paul says. Paul says, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've been mocked, and all of it made me better as a Christian. (laughs) All of it made me cling closer to God, and all of it, the highs and the lows have taught me Everything in this world can be taken away from me. Doesn't mean I want that to happen. Doesn't mean I don't love the things and the people that I have. What it means is the health and the well-being and the sustainability of my soul is not dependent on anything besides Jesus Christ. That's how I can be content. That's a radical kind of faith. I don't understand it, but I want to. I want to. And I don't want to be so foolish to think that I've got unlimited time on this planet to figure it out. I want to figure it out now. And I pray that you do too because Paul says it's a secret and it is a rare jewel that few people find. First Peter also says, skip down to, to chapter 5 in that letter in verse 10. He says that the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Not just that, but B, control doesn't equal control. Contentment. So we know that being content is a secret that must be learned. It's something that not all Christians learn. It's something that we have to catch by following Jesus as a disciple. And the first thing about that is comfort does not equal contentment. Remember, you can be very comfortable and have it all taken away. Control doesn't equal contentment. You and I don't have as much control over our lives as we think that we do oftentimes. Our abilities are very limited. And yet many times we believe we can control things. I have learned the hard way that we have very little control over our lives and what happens. Really, I think the only thing we do have control over is our posture before God and our perspective on life. Our disciplines, the way we live, the way we treat people. Most of what is internal that bleeds out to our external. What happens around us is very limited. And Paul clearly lays out in verse 13 what is the secret. And it's God's strength. It's not catchy. It's not a new sound bite. It's not anything that you haven't heard before. And that's good. It's the same gospel. Paul says the great secret to being content is relying on God's strength. The verse that we often take and apply to sports or prosperity or success or career is really talking about being content in Christ no matter what you have. And he says the secret is God's strength. It's that I don't rely on human strength. I rely on God's strength. Because our God is an impressive God. Has God been good to you lately? Man, I'm telling you, uh, our God is an impressive God. He does things you and I can't fathom. He does things I can't fathom. Our God is faithful. He is in the details. He moves mountains when we don't even know the mountains are there yet because we can't see them. It's, It's amazing what our God does. And the New Testament makes it very clear that God is continually holding the very atoms in our universe, together through Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says this. says that he, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Now you think about your God when you think about the fact that the Bible tells us that he governs the existence of the sun, the moon, and the stars that we see above us. In fact, I think it's very fascinating in my study on contentment and the power of God around us That Isaiah tells us that every single one of the stars in the cosmos is named by God and sustained by God. pastor covered this verse not long ago. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number and he calls them all by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. That's a supernatural kind of control. To control and sustain the stars. We have very little control over our day-to-day lives. (laughs) And I love this because in my study, humans, I'll put this on the screen, humans estimate the number of stars in the universe. This is a human estimate now, okay? And I don't know how to say the number. Humans estimate the total number of stars is this number. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. I didn't, I didn't try to pronunciate it. I do know it's a one with 24 zeros. It's a lot of stars. That's a lot of stars to know the names. That's a lot of stars to, to sustain. And yet our God does it with ease. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> now imagine God knowing and sustaining every person. Because how does Isaiah apply this to the people of God? Isaiah is applying this to the people of God about God sustaining the stars and knowing every single one of them by name by telling God's people to cut out the complaints that God has forgotten you. That's how he applies it to God's people. Stop complaining about God forgetting you because if God knows and sustains every single one of those stars with all those zeros, he knows every name of every person of all seven billion people on the planet and he knows all seven billion people's story and he knows the amount of hairs on the head of all seven billion people. Church family, our God has not forgotten you. Our God is not far from you, even though you may feel far from him. And I've felt far from him many times in my life. God is not far from you. God is close. God is waiting for you to draw near to him. God is waiting for you to turn to him. And one of the biggest ways he's waiting for us Christians to turn to him is to turn to him with control. That we are so naive. And I am so prideful prideful to think that I can control the things in my life and not need God for it when I don't know Any of those stars, maybe one or two I can name. And God sustains them all and he's sustaining your life. Let me tell you, you will find contentment and I will find contentment when we can lay down the idol of control because it's a foolish ambition anyway. But how much better is it to trust the Lord with the control that you have over your life? That's a radical kind of faith. That's when you're in prison or when you're in a palace, God is still in control. I'm going to give him the credit and glory for it no matter what happens. I love this quote, and then I'll give you number two. It says, in active obedience, we worship God by doing what pleases him. But by passive obedience, we worship God by being pleased with what he does. There are many forms of worship. And not all of them are doing what pleases him, but being pleased in what he does. Does that represent my life and yours? So number one, not only is being content a secret that must be learned, that not all Christians have learned, not only is comfort and control to idols in our culture that we have to let go because they don't lead us to being content. Not only that, but let me tell you number two, being content is a powerful perspective. Being content is a powerful perspective. I love my job. I love my calling. I have the great joy of being on college campuses every week. I get to be around the young people. And I'm feeling older and older the more I get around them because I don't understand the words they're saying as much these days. (laughs) That's when it hit me. That's what I told my wife. I said, there's some words they're saying. I don't understand the meaning. I'm too embarrassed to ask. I feel like I should know, but I don't. And that's how I knew. I'm not in that stage anymore. But I love being on college campuses. I love college students. As I told you, my life changed in college, and I love what I get to do. And I want to tell you, in the last seven years, I've been at Bellevue for eight on staff. For seven, next year is eight years of me on staff here at Bellevue. I have loved being here. I have learned that even though the secular college campuses in America are so dark, Jesus still shines the brightest on these campuses. There is praise the Lord, amen, that we so often down the college campuses in America And we are so critical of them, especially sometimes in the Christian world. And yet God is sending believers firm in their faith to these campuses to be missionaries at them. That God is aware of how lost our campuses are in America, and yet he's choosing to send lights into these campuses. And I get to work with who these lights are every week. And I want to tell you, I have seen over the years many college students who I never thought would get saved give their lives to Jesus. I've seen students get saved from addictions. I've seen students get saved from strongholds. I've seen students get saved from from worldly success and worldly acclamations and, and, and achievements and all these things. I've seen students get saved from a whole lot of stuff. Some of them I've known. Some of them I haven't known. And I've watched their journey from afar. But one of the things that I wanted to share with you this morning. Is that in the last seven and eight years of doing college ministry, the number one most common reason, the number one, and I mean this is shoulder to shoulder conversations with these young people. The number one most common reason we see people get saved who normally never would, they always tell us this right here, that the number one reason is that they saw someone who was actually happy and at peace being a Christian. That the number one thing is that they actually saw somebody who was content in their faith. And they said, man, I want that. You know why? Because there's nowhere else in our culture you can find that kind of peace and contentment. Money can't do it. These other false religions cannot do it. Affirmation of people cannot do it. And the world is desperate. And the world is looking for hope. And it's looking for light. And most of all, when we see young people get saved they come and tell us hey i saw somebody who was content in christ that loved jesus and i was like man i want that (laughs) just content because one of the most attractive things to non-believers are truly content christians and you can flip that coin on his head one of the most unattractive things to a non-christian are christians who aren't even joyful being christians Man, I've got to tell you, when I was lost at 21 years old, the thing that pushed me away from Christianity the most, what would have made me never darken the doors of a church, was Christians who were not happy being Christians. I have got to tell you this morning that when I met discontent Christians in college, my mindset was, why would I want your faith when you're just as unhappy as I am? I'm just being honest. I was around Christians. I seen them up close. And when I saw Christians that weren't content and didn't have any more faith than I did and were chasing after more and more and more and next and next and next and money and money and money and recognition, 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 I was like, man, I'm doing that already. (laughs) Listen, I was lost. I knew I was lost. To me, the grass was greener everywhere I wasn't standing. (laughs) Whatever I didn't have, that was better. But the one thing that I would not consider that my mom kept praying for me to turn my eyes to was Christianity. And I kept telling her, I don't believe it's real. I don't see it being real to the people who claim it. Now, I had a false expectation and a false expectation of what I was supposed to see from Christians. But understand this, that there is no greater evangelism tool we have when we are verbally telling someone the gospel than for you and I to be content in Christ. To tell somebody, hey, Christ is all you need and be able to sit eye to eye with them and know that, hey, I'm not chasing after more of the world to satisfy my soul. I'm not chasing after recognition outside the church or in the church. I'm not chasing after the next season or the next job or the next person. I'm happy and I'm content where God has placed me. I'm telling you, it wins souls over. There's a reason why Peter said to be prepared for when people ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the most convicting part of my study for me personally. If we are never asked about the hope that is in us, we have to ask, do we have hope in us? Scripture tells us be prepared. And there are Christians in our culture today who have never been asked about the hope that's in them because they don't have it. But you and I are called to something different. Is Christ dying for your sins and mine and being raised from the grave, giving us new life, worth us being content today? Or does he have to do a little more? I have wrestled with this. I have struggled with this because I want to live a life where I don't need anything of this world. I am content in Jesus Christ. Where he has put me, I am all in. Where my feet are, I am present. Who is in front of me, I love them. And my mind is not distracted and divided on the things of this world or the things of selfish ambition. I want it. And Paul says it's a secret. And the only way to learn it is by catching it from the one we follow, meaning Jesus. Young people in the room, If you have grown up in homes where you have seen Christianity be reduced to religion on Sundays, hear me. It is far greater than that. It is a living, active relationship. For everyone else in the room who has more experience and wisdom than I have, don't grow weary in your pursuit of Christ no matter what trial you have encountered. Christ is faithful enough if we hold firm to the faith that he has given us. I think about Paul and Silas when they were actually in Philippi. When they went to jail, you remember the account, it's in Acts 16. It's an amazing chapter. Paul and Silas go to jail in Philippi. Right before they get thrown in jail, the clothes are ripped off them publicly. Their back is beaten. They're bleeding. They've been embarrassed publicly. They've been tortured. And they are in a terrible, terrible circumstance. One author and pastor many years ago called it possibly the second greatest act of contentment in human history. is Paul and Silas worshiping in in prison. And the first being Jesus being faithful to the Father's will on the cross. And I, I, I read that chapter of Paul and Silas when they get to prison. And in that prison, remember, the conditions would have been awful. It would have smelled terrible. There would have been waste and stench from all of the other inmates. Their wounds were awful. Their feet would have been restrained in stocks in the worst part of the prison. The prison was almost in total total darkness. They had to listen to the other prisoners curse and yell. Everything they saw, smell, and heard would have been disgusting. No food, no medical treatment. And it's in this circumstance Paul and Silas choose to have a worship night at midnight. I'll be honest, I do college ministry. Sometimes to do a worship night we need coffee, we need a band, we need Jeff Maxwell with a guitar. Like sometimes we need a few things to have a worship night. And Paul and Silas choose the worst possible environment to start lifting their praises up to God. It's, it's unimaginable, the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit to give them this, this heart of praise and worship in this moment. It only comes through the strength of God. And what happens from that moment? What happens is the other jailers begin listening To Paul and Silas. And they're mystified at their praises and their joy in this moment. They can't understand it, number one. But then number two, God sends an earthquake. The jail doors are thrown open. (laughs) The jailer, who knows he's going to lose his life as prisoners escape on his watch, draw his sword. And as he's about to kill himself, Paul and Silas go, don't. Don't harm yourself. For we are all here. And they have the chance to escape physically. But they aren't dependent on being free physically because Paul and Silas are free spiritually. (laughs) Like, the great win for them is not physical freedom. It is that they have spiritual freedom in Christ. They have mental freedom in Christ. they They have emotional freedom in Christ. And so in this moment to them, they make a choice to save a jailer instead of running. And the jailer, of course, runs over to them falls at their feet after listening to this worship night and asks them the most important question a human being can ask, that being, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul's response stands the test of time because he says, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Amen. Amen. And what happens is this jailer gets saved. And quite literally, hear me, Paul and Silas being content in prison Helped lead this jailer to salvation for all of eternity. <laughs> That's crazy. And I think about my life and I think about yours. I think about how many people are watching our faith. I think about how many non believers you have in your workplace, in your family, and in your friend circles who are watching your faith, and you would never know it, but are being impacted by every day that you choose to be content in Christ. I think about the times when I was growing up and my mom and dad were content with what we had, not chasing after more, and how that impacted me as a kid. I think about moms and dads who go home and are content in Christ, don't need what's more, don't need what's next, happy in Christ, and how that impacts the children. Church family, I'll tell you, I love this quote. I'll put it on the screen. It says this about Paul's final exhortation. It says, It's as if Paul is telling the Philippians, Thank you for your gift you remember me. I am the man who planted a church by singing at midnight in your city jail with an empty stomach and a bleeding back. If anything, I am even stronger now in Christ than I was then. The same secret of abiding supernatural contentment is mine in Christ and it can be yours. Church family, the hard lesson that we have to learn that I'm walking through is that the grass is not greener on the other side. Your joy, your peace, your contentment is not found in a place, a position, or a possession. It's found in one person. Your peace is not found in this world. Your peace is found in a prince. Your peace is found in Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have all you need. Surrender the idol of comfort in your life. Surrender the idol of control in my life. Lay down the idols and let's choose to worship the one who has given us far more than we could ever want or need anyway.